The scripture for tonight's sermon is Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman in the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for the Lord is their steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Okay. Let me pray, and we will get to work on Psalm 130. Um, and, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, I, on Thursday is my normal day of sermon writing. And um, I thought this week I was going to do Mark, and it was the, the, uh, the rich young ruler. I wrote a sermon for that. I kind of just decided... You know, let's extend the Advent kind of week, one week more, to include December 5th. So I went ahead and wrote a, another sermon between Saturday and today that's maybe a little bit more fitting for the time of our church. So that's kind of how I went about that. Let me pray and we'll get into Psalm 130 together. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for... Your help, you are a help, and you are, Lord God, the Almighty God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We pray that you would help us to engage in what your word says tonight, and I pray, Lord, that it would be enough for us. Lord, we give you all the glory, and we look to you, Lord God, to give us hope, even if, if, if it's unexpected. We pray that you would do so. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen. All right, so Christmas is coming up. I bet some of you kids knew that. I bet some of you guys knew that Christmas was right around the corner. If you could ask Santa Claus for anything, what would you ask him to bring you? What are you most excited about getting for Christmas? And I'll be the first to admit that Christmas time makes holidays or I'm sorry, the holiday is so much more fun. Exchanging gifts at Christmas time makes the Christmas holiday so much more fun than any other holiday. There's buildup, there's expectation, there's mystery. Maybe, maybe actually not so much for me, since I already know I'm getting some drill bits, because I picked them out, and I gave them to my daughter at Home Depot so that she could purchase them for me and then give them to me at the end of the month. So I guess the mystery piece isn't so much intact for me, although I am looking forward to getting those drill bits at fourteen ninety seven. How could you pass that up? It's within the, um, the frame of her um, budget. But for the rest of you, probably there's some mystery as to what's going to be under the Christmas tree. And everyone assumes, I can say this, that they're going to get something good. And... You know, there's this whole kind of legend. I don't even know if you'd call it a legend. Is it a legend about getting coal if you've been a bad person? 
you've been bad. Um, who's ever gotten coal, really? Anybody in here? Maybe, maybe you have. Or have you given coal? You know, here's two Kingston briquettes for you. You kind of had a rough third, fourth quarter. So you get coal instead of a gift. I don't think anybody falls into that category. I don't know if anybody's ever gotten that or has given that as a gift. We expect that there's going to be a good gift under the tree. We look forward to Christmas because not only is there this gift, and maybe it's a mystery. Maybe the mystery is, am I going to get what I really want? How far does mom and dad's budget really stretch here? Um, so maybe that's the mystery. What will I get? There's this mystery. There's this expectation. And there's this looking forward. There's this assumption that there's going to be something good. There's going to be something good for us. And this is one aspect of Advent, perhaps, that maybe we can capitalize on a little bit more. Maybe this is one of the, uh, the great connections, one of the things that makes the whole gift-giving thing really Christian, if, we, if you will. Right? So there's a connection between my eagerness about the gift that I'm going to get or maybe even give and surprise somebody. And that waiting, that expectation, and the expectation of Jesus returning. Right? So there's this kind of this parallel between us waiting for Christmas Day to arrive. And then that being a parallel to us waiting as Christians to Jesus returning. And of course, he is the good gift. He is what we're really longing for, what we're really waiting for. And this is where gift giving, I would suggest to you, is a really good way to celebrate Christmas. It's fantastic. So we can be Christian about this. We can, we can assuage any guilt that we might have about giving gifts. Um, here we go. I'm just giving you some, some good ways to think about this biblically. Now, somehow I have to transition this to the topic of Psalm 130, which doesn't seem like it has anything to do with Christmas if we just read this text. But it does, I would suggest. It highlights the themes of hope and the themes of waiting. The themes of hope and the themes of waiting. Another reason I decided to go to one, Psalm 130 is because it speaks just a little bit to our church right now. Right now, our congregation is in a period of waiting. And I would suggest that we're waiting in at least three different ways. Probably more. Probably more but at least three different ways. One of them is that we're waiting for Christmas Day to arrive. One of them is that we're waiting for Jesus to arrive and his return. We're waiting for that. And our whole life is summarized in waiting. And I suppose a more pointed one, one that maybe is more pointed for our congregation, is that we're waiting for clarity on what is next with GCF, what is next with our church. So I want to spend a little time this afternoon on this psalm, on this theme. What does God have to say to us right now? How can I help pastor us and shepherd us through this time? How should we approach this season? Not just the Christmas season, not just the Advent season, but how should we approach this season in the life of our church? In what way does God intend to use this for our good and for our growth? So those are some questions that I want to wrestle with. And let me just make two points tonight. I just want to make two points, and I'll say these, these two points. God is working, and God is speaking. God is working, number one. That's one of the first things I want to say. God is working, even when he seems 
absent. How? That's a question. How does God work even when he seems absent? Sometimes God does seem absent. And I would say this. The way that God works is that he creates tension in our lives and he calls us to wait. God creates tension in our lives and he calls us to wait. And this is a sign of his work. A lot of times we can maybe chalk this up or interpret this as, man, God, where is it? He's gone, MIA. But the reality is the tension that he has created in your life, the tension that he has created in our lives is actually a sign perhaps of his work. And before I get into this any further, I want to wrestle with this idea or clarify this. What is a psalm of ascent? We look at Psalm 130, and if you look just above verse 1, it will say a psalm of ascent. Psalm 120 through 134, I believe it is, are psalms of ascent. What is that? Well, the city of Jerusalem was situated on a high hill. Jews traveling to Jerusalem for one of the three main annual Jewish festivals traditionally sang these songs on the ascent or the uphill road to the city. So here's Jerusalem on this hill. The people of God would kind of pilgrimage there and they would sing these psalms. They would be singing Psalm 130 on their way to meet with God. According to some traditions, the Jewish priests also sang some of these songs of ascent as they walked up the steps to the temple of, or the temple in Jerusalem, I'm sorry. So the temple was in Jerusalem. Perhaps in the Old Testament, we could say that the faith of the Israelites was a little bit more geographical, meaning that they went to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was kind of the center of their faith because the temple was built there. And of course, in Christ, you remember this is kind of in the mind of the woman, where should we worship you, on this hill or that hill? And, um, and uh, Jesus says to the lady in John 4, well, no, those who worship me will worship me in spirit and truth. Meaning it's not by location so much anymore, it's by the spirit and by truth. And that was, in a sense, always true, even for the Israelites in the Old Testament. But here we have this Psalms of Ascent where these people, the Israelites, the people of God, would be migrating to or pilgrimaging to the city of Jerusalem because the temple was there. This was kind of the center of worship. This is where they went to meet with God. So here's Israel going to meet with God, and they're singing this song. Isn't that interesting? They're singing to the likes of what some of the things are in this verse. They encounter God, and they worship him even when they don't hear from him. And I'm, here's how we see this in the psalm. Look at verse 5 and 6, if you will. In Psalm 130, verse 5 and 6, they say this, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. That's an interesting thing to be singing when you're actually going to Jerusalem to meet with the living God. I wait for the Lord. I wait for him eagerly. So there's this sense, you see, there's this sense that they're waiting for him. In what way are they waiting for him? What way is, is God perceived in their midst as absent? And this Hebrew word, I want to point this out, is kwava. It means waiting. Kwava comes from the root Hebrew word kwav, which means cord. A cord pulled tight creates tension. That's kwava, a waiting, a tension. 
perhaps some discomfort. Now, if you can hear this in David's longing for the Lord, that the entire story of Israel is really them waiting for redemption. So here's the Israelites. They're going to meet with God, and they're waiting for redemption. Now, this is interesting that they'll be waiting for redemption because follow me here, verse 2 and 3. It says this in verse 2 and 3. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So this is interesting. And what do I see that's so interesting about this? Well, they're waiting for redemption. Do you see that? But at the same time, they're acknowledging there is forgiveness with God. So in a sense, the question is, what, what do you mean they're waiting for redemption? Haven't they been redeemed already? They're forgiven. They know God's forgiveness, don't they? So in what way are they waiting? What are they waiting on? Do you see, do you see what I'm seeing here? They're waiting, but they already know God as the God who redeems. They already know God as the one who has mercy. They already know him as the one who forgives. Is it, haven't they tasted the redemption of God? Well, I'm going to suggest this. Yes, they did, but there's something more that they're waiting for. There's something bigger. They already know the forgiveness of God, but they seem to be waiting for a bigger and more final realization of God's redemption. You see, the Israelites are already in this already but not yet conundrum, in this tension of we have something, but we're still waiting for the fullness of it. We know that God is a forgiving God. We know that. But yet there's, a, there's more to it. And we're looking on the horizon. We're stuck in this in-between we, that we experience in our lives. And all of us, to some extent, our lives are marked by being caught in that in-between. Is it not? The already but not yet. It's, it's commonly looked at as a New Testament thing. But the reality is... It's a biblical thing from start to finish, and it's a life experience thing. All of us, to some extent, fit in that trajectory. That would describe all of our lives, where there's kind of a completion, but not fully. Where we see things, but not totally clearly. Where God has already begun to work in our hearts, but he hasn't totally brought it to completion. We wait for the redemption of our bodies. We wait for the redemption of all the earth. We wait for the kingdom of God to be fully realized on this earth as it is in heaven. We see pockets of the kingdom of God on this earth, don't we? But we don't see the fullness of the kingdom of God as it is in heaven right now. The kingdom of God in heaven as it is taking place right now in heaven is not the way it takes place on this earth. You guys know that. So we see pockets of this, but we're waiting for the fullness of it. There's still darkness. There's still brokenness that we experience. So we wait for the redemption of our bodies. We wait for the redemption of all the earth. But we do so with hope, with eagerness, even with some pain and discomfort, don't we? This is where the psalmist says, my soul waits for the Lord. 
So the question, how is God working? He creates tension in our lives and he calls us to wait. And this is a sign that God is at work in our lives. Even though we may often interpret it as absence. So we can look at that. We can look at the different ways that God has called us to wait. And the tension that creates, it's the handiwork of God. That's a way that God has shown up in your life. Because he's doing something in that tension. He's creating something in you through that tension. And in me. Okay, so God is working. Number two, God is speaking. Even when he seems silent, God is speaking. And the question here is, how, does, how do we deal with the silence? How do we deal with the silence of God sometimes? Israel finds themselves waiting for a Messiah, for redemption. Perhaps they're looking forward to Christ. And God has spoken. He's given them hope. But they don't know exactly when this will happen or how it will happen. We see that when Jesus actually comes to the earth, the Israelites, the very people that were waiting for him, actually didn't recognize him exactly. Which means the realization of what they were waiting for, they didn't know what it was going to look like exactly. They had some ideas, but they weren't totally sure. So in a sense, God had given them, he spoke to them through his word, he's given them some clarity but they don't know exactly how this is going to look. They don't know exactly when it's going to happen. So there's a sense in which, yes, God has spoken. But there's also a sense in which he's been silent. I wish he would give us more clarity. I wish he would give us more. Don't we live in that conundrum? Don't we live in that tension? I have some clarity. I wish there was more. I really do. I wish there was more. And this is the way that God pulls us tight, that there's tension on that rope. And how should we approach that? Well, let's look at verse 5 and 6 together. It says this, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Do you notice there's two hopes in those passages, in those verses? Hope in the Lord. And then what else? Hope in his word. There's a connection between hoping in God and hoping in his word. And did you ever notice how easy it is to become disoriented when there's hardship, when there's trials in your life? It's very easy to get disoriented. When you are stressed, it is easy to let your emotions control you. And usually when your emotions are all over the place like this and they start controlling you, it's never a good thing for you. And this is where the Psalms are really helpful for God's people. They take our emotions when they're like this and they are kind of like a harness that leads us this way. As we attach ourselves to God's word, they direct our hearts, they direct our focus, they direct our emotions towards God in helpful ways. They show us how to do that. And they suggest, here, trust in my word. Look to what I have spoken. Don't let your emotions ultimately be the guide. So how do you put your hope in the Lord? You hope 
in his words. And we can see this even with the Israelites. Here they are singing this song on their way to Jerusalem to meet with the living God. They're directing their attention. No matter what they're facing in their lives, they're directing their attention to the living God. And this psalm also, I I would suggest, it recognizes the temptation to despair. But they show us a way to defeat that, to turn your attention to God and what he says in his word. Now you might say, you know what? All of this is well and good. But I oftentimes, or I'm sorry, uh, oftentimes you have this specific question about what you should do, whether, what, whatever it is in your life. And you start with that question. We start with that question, don't we? We start with very particular issues in our lives and we approach the living God. And when we approach the Bible, and we could say, Scripture, usually when I read the Bible has nothing to do with what is really on my heart, with the questions that I face, with the practicalities that I need wisdom for. Scripture doesn't give me those answers. And I would suggest to you, you guys have heard me say this a number of different times. The reason I think we struggle to get into the Word of God isn't because we don't have enough time I would suggest this, and you guys can test me on this. Maybe I'm just speaking in my own life. The reason I struggle to get into the Word of God is because I don't find it relevant. It doesn't deal with the issues that keep me awake at night, at least not directly, at least not in my time frame. I struggle to see the connection between reading about Hezekiah and the decision I have to make here. It's hard to make those connections a lot of times, and it doesn't seem like it's a good use of time. And that's really perhaps what I mean. And maybe you, I don't have time. I struggle to get into it. Well, here's perhaps what we can say about that. The Bible as a whole, as the entire story, is ultimately hopeful about a situation that was ultimately hopeless. That's the entire narrative of Scripture. It presents us an ultimately hopeless situation. And it gives us a solution that is ultimately hopeful about that situation. Scripture unravels the story about how God makes a way for sinners who are cut off from Him forever and utterly, eternally hopeless Scripture unfolds this narrative in this storyline about how God solves that problem and brings hope when there's ultimate hopelessness. Every page of Scripture, therefore, is a piece of this story of unexpected hope. Do you see that? Everything fits into this narrative of how God does something to give hope. And here's how the psalmist views God's forgiveness as a cosmic reality. He talks about how God forgives and how this is not just a personal thing between him and God, but God forgives as a cosmic reality that really, if you look at it, the big problem with all of reality is that mankind is cut off from God and now there's actually a way back to him. There is hope. 
And when the psalmist looks at this, the cosmic reality of God forgiving sin, and I'm not saying every single person is automatically forgiven. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that this is the big issue in the universe. This is it. And if God can solve this issue, there's hope in every issue with God. There is hope with God in everything and in every circumstance of life. And all of Scripture tells us this story and gives us hope. Okay, so God speaks, and God is speaking, even when he seems like he's silent, and God works, even when he seems like he's absent. Some concluding thoughts. Let me ask you this. In what way does God intend to use this for our good? Well, God is calling us to be eager, to be confident, to be hopeful as we wait on him. And this doesn't preclude action. It never does. But our waiting should be marked by eager, confident, and hopefulness. We have grounds for that as Christians. Verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. How do watchmen wait for the morning? We can ask, well, they watch in this particular way. They wait for the morning with eagerness, with confidence, with hopefulness, because it's going to happen. You can, you can appreciate, right, what what being a watchman is like in ancient culture. They didn't have LED lights. They didn't have headlamps. They didn't have outdoor lighting. So the darkness over the night would have been really concerning for somebody who was keeping watch over the city. So they wait eagerly. They wait expectantly. And they wait confidently for the morning because they know it's going to happen. They know it will be here. The watchmen don't wonder, I, you know, I wonder if the sun will rise this time. They know that it will happen, so they look to it with confidence and eagerness. Just like kids. Do you wonder whether your parents will give you charcoal this Christmas? Do you wonder if they'll give you bread? Or, I'm sorry, uh, a snake in place of bread? Or a stone instead of a fish? Why would he give you anything what is that other than what is absolutely good and best for you? You can have confidence in the fact that your parents are probably going to give you something that you like, something that you want, something that is good for you for Christmas. So we wait in tension, but God is the giver of all good gifts, and we can acknowledge in every circumstance of life that no matter what happens— God gives good gifts. He is a good heavenly father who gives good gifts. Even when we don't know, say, the outcome or what it is. Maybe if this psalm was written today, it wouldn't say that we wait more eagerly than or we wait as watchmen more than watchmen for the morning. We, we might say we wait the way that children wait more than children wait for Christmas morning, perhaps. So if God were not good, if God were not righteous, if he wasn't a good and righteous father, making us wait, I would suggest, would be cruel. 
God would be cruel, perhaps, to make us wait. But because he is a good father, because he is a righteous father, because he only gives good things to his children, we can be confident in our wait, knowing that God always provides what is good. Number two, and last, we'll finish with this. We can be comfortable with the uncomfortable. We find ourselves waiting for Christmas. We find ourselves waiting for the return of Jesus. We find ourselves waiting for an answer about what is next for me, for my family, for our church. We want light, and we cry out to God, give us light. Oh God, give us clarity. Please don't make us wait. In some ways, we cry that out in our soul. And we don't like this tension. We feel like we're being pulled tight between our longings and our reality. But we can know that this is God's way of putting tension within his people, not because he is mean, but because he is love. The discomfort and the pain and the waiting is typically where he builds faith. This is where God does his work. He builds faith. He builds dependence. And when there is no resolution, not only, or I'm sorry, when there is the resolution, not only do we come out of these seasons more mature, but our joy is deeper and more complete in the Lord as well. So we can wait with eagerness, with hopefulness, with confidence that God is good, he's accomplishing good things, and that he's using, he's using the hardship to produce maturity and to also complete our joy in him. Let's pray. Lord, we do give you our trust, and we ask, Lord God, that you would help us to know, Father, how we should go forward. We pray that you would be with us as we walk this journey together. And we ask, Lord, that there would be hopefulness, confidence, eagerness, Lord God, looking expectantly to what you will do, even though we don't know how it will look, that you are a good father and you will do what is good and what is right. We pray, Father, that you would Make that hope real in each and every one of us. And we pray that you would be glorified in it and that you would be glorified through it. In Jesus' name we pray all these things.